Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalm 51. Listen to God's word for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9. Listen again to God's word for us. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and with his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me again in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word 
with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our passage from Matthew this morning is the story of Jesus calling Matthew, a tax collector, to become his disciple. As recounted in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew's given name was Levi. Matthew is presumably a name that Jesus bestowed on him. And the name Matthew comes from Hebrew, Matanahu, which means gift of the Lord. To Jesus, this tax collector turned fisher of men, this religious and political apostate turned apostle and ultimate author of the gospel we heard this morning. This man is a gift of the Lord. Now, Matthew, again, he was a tax collector. He was likely operating either in Capernaum proper, right along the Sea of Galilee, and taxing fishermen uh, like disciples-to-be Peter and Andrew, James and John. Or he might have also been in the taxing business a little further north along a major trade route linking Damascus and the Mediterranean Sea. As many of you know, tax collectors were not popular, not well-liked. As Rome had imperially expanded and taken over more and more territory, they'd found that one of the most efficient means of collecting taxes was enlisting uh, a system of tax farming in which they would auction off a contract to collect taxes, uh, often to locals. And whoever won the contract would owe the Romans a set amount, but would then have the authority, under the name and military threat of the Roman Empire, to go and collect as much in taxes as they wanted uh, from people that were in their designated area. And in this way, they often profited handsomely off of Roman occupation, as well as the hard work of their neighbors that they were taxing. As you can imagine, people in Galilee and Judah found tax collectors to be, with good reason, treacherous, corrupt, traitorous, abusive, ungodly in their apparent disregard for the well-being of their fellow Jews. So we won't sugarcoat it. These guys, they were bad news. And the kinds of harm that they daily, routinely, intentionally, callously inflicted on other people. The vast, vast majority of folks uh, that they were taxing were just scraping by. They were subsistence farmers or fishermen, perhaps tradesmen or merchants, but from the meager resources that they carefully grew or caught or crafted for themselves and for their families, they had to carve out whatever the tax collector demanded just to fend off the threat of physical violence from the Roman soldiers. And people like Matthew, They were the face of this mistreatment. Yet Jesus found in Matthew, the tax collector, someone whom he would come to call Matthew, gift of the Lord. Why? Well, Matthew's story, while shocking in terms of who Jesus seemed to be keeping company with and recruiting to be his followers, Matthew's story is, of course, one of repentance, one of conversion. As many of you know, the prominent words for sin in Greek, as well as in Hebrew, mean roughly missing the mark or missing the way, 
To sin is to veer off the path of righteousness, falling short of the glory of God. And conversion is a recognition, an open acknowledgement of this veering away from God. And it's a turning or being turned back to the path and the life-giving ways of the Lord. And even though, as Paul confesses in his letter to the Romans, one still wrestles with successfully living out the life-giving ways of God, even after conversion, one has recognized and renounced the ways that stray from God. And one, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has begun being grown and nurtured into the ways of the Lord. Now, a tax collector, a person who has invested his life and his livelihood in persecuting and in taking advantage of others, he is a gift of God, gift of the Lord in Jesus' eyes, perhaps because of the magnitude, the prominence, the incredible witness of that life turning to the twin love of God and neighbor. While not a perfect equivalent, you can imagine today the waves of a local drug pen, kingpin, turning prominently to the love of God and neighbor. Or somebody running some really aggressive Ponzi scheme, renouncing it, and likewise trying to make amends and live in service of others. I've also, though, always found it personally fascinating how quickly and abruptly Matthew seems to turn to follow Jesus. It always makes me think that Matthew had to have been looking or longing for something that resonated and harmonized in Christ when Christ said, follow me. Something in Matthew that was searching and found an answer in Jesus' call, Jesus' invitation to follow him. I imagine there must have been some abiding desire, some gnawing need that had been growing larger with every coin collected every fruit from someone else's labor taken. Something in Matthew that left him ready to move without hesitation at Jesus' invitation. So we don't know what it was precisely. Perhaps there was something compelling in Jesus' voice, his eyes, his sincerity, his conviction. He had been healing and preaching a lot at this point, drawing crowds, so Matthew likely knew about Jesus, even if from a distance. But nonetheless, he still leapt really quickly at the invitation. He left with amazing speed. So we can imagine that there was some deep lack or loss at the heart of Matthew that drove him forward at the chance and the hope to be filled in following Jesus. But it wasn't just Matthew that we read about in the Gospels. Um, there were other tax collectors who came to eat and drink, drink with Jesus too. We hear in the Gospels that this was a fairly routine occurrence, so much so that some of the Pharisees would look at Jesus, look at his disciples, and say, who is this guy who eats with tax collectors and sinners? Who is is this man, acclaimed as righteous by the roving, raving crowds, who shares company with people as egregiously abusive and corrupt as tax collectors? It is a fair question to ask. There's no doubt about that. As we were just discussing, tax collectors were often quite abusive. And yet, tax collectors flocked to Jesus, like so many others, seeing in him a new way of life no longer built on exploitation, but on exaltation of God and the amazing grace that beckoned and lured them back into the fulfilling paths of loving the Lord and caring for their neighbors. 
something that was crying out inside of them, some sentiment, if not the very words, akin to Psalm 51 that we heard this morning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me of sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant in me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, it wasn't just tax collectors, though, that were coming to Jesus. The Gospels also recount that it was also sinners writ large who found themselves drawn into the orbit of Jesus' words and ministry. Something within them, too, wanted to come to dinner with this man, to hear this man speak, to see him heal, perhaps even to be healed. And these are the people that says, that Jesus says, he has come to beckon home. These sinners, these folks who are not well, but those who need to be made well. Now, some religious leaders of Jesus' day did not approve of this ministry, as we heard about this morning. But the irony, of course, is that those who grumbled against Jesus for engaging with sinners, and perhaps begrudged him for gaining a reputation as a righteous man and a healer while consorting with them, these folks were sinners themselves. They are some, they are among those whom Jesus came to save. And we know that we are all are in this bucket. We all fall short of loving God with our whole heart and soul and might. We all fail to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And none of us need to look very far to see that this is the case today as it has been for societies and people and individuals and families and institutions throughout human history. Whether it's at home or in the workplace, in the community or in the nation or between nations, the sinful temptations and practices, they're there. From resentment and fear of others, to putting others down consistently, to gathering as much reputation for our own name or as many resources into our own barns as we can harbor, to readily unleashing righteous anger at the specks, and to be honest, sometimes the logs in other people's eyes, but yet failing to deal with the logs and the specks stuck in and skewing our own vision. That sin extends as well to securing and consuming more resources for ourselves, our families, our institutions than we need, while a billion of our neighbors today live in abject impoverishment and billions more on the verge of it. As 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr famously noted, quote, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. End quote. The headlines routinely proclaim the sin of the world, the hurt of the world, as they have across the generations. In interpersonal and in institutional ways, in communal and in national levels, we are wounded and wounding creatures, all too often destructive of ourselves and of others. But sisters and brothers, we all know that this is not what we were made for. 
This is not why God created us. We were crafted in God's image to flourish in mutual development and creative exercise of our God-given gifts in community with one another. God made us to work and to play constructively, creatively, to bear and enjoy the fruits of culture with each other, art, music, literature, food, worship, ritual, tradition, science, sport, architecture, invention, all of these things which are aspects of God's good creation, which we have been given creative capacities to flourish in making with one another and friendship with one another. They're all beautiful things. And to give glory to God for this good creation of which we've been made a part, and in doing so honor the unique and incalculable beauty and dignity of each one of us, to embrace the immense potential of every single human being as wonderfully and fearfully knit together by God, that's why we're here. We were made to live into the prophetic visions and scripture of homes and neighborhoods in which every child can learn and play and grow safely, where they can develop under the wise watch of elders now resting from their toil while those still in physical youth are out tending and tilling the ground of their respective vocations. And the goodness of creation of which we're a part is not just about society, it also extends beyond us, beyond our species, to everything that God made. God made us embodied and interwoven with all living beings and physicality that surrounds us on earth and throughout the universe for a reason. God did it because it's good. Very good, as God proclaimed in Genesis, And as the junior choir echoed beautifully this morning, all things bright and beautiful. All things great and all things small, all things wise and wonderful. God, our Father, created them all. And we know as well, one of the big things that brought all of us here this morning is that God also, in addition to creating us as part of a good creation, came embodied, enfleshed as Christ to be among us and rescue us, to bring us back into imaging God, imaging the creative, life-giving ways of God's good creation in the actions and the activities of our everyday lives. Although we are ill with sin, Although we are still recovering from that illness, although we are still rehabbing in this life, Christ, the great physician, came in order to heal us, to take our illness upon himself in ways that surpass our understanding, but are revealed so powerfully in Christ's resurrection and conquering of death. Christ took our illness upon himself such that we may live in full concert with God and with one another. And our call, our invitation from Christ, is to turn and lean into this way of life. In this life, we will, of course, always be in recovery, wrestling with sin, learning and relearning the paths, the steps for which we are created. But the unbounded gift of grace that we have in Christ is the invitation, even though we are sinners, to turn in faith and trust and obedience and joy and repentance and hope and abiding confidence that God sees us, wills us, and wants us to flourish. 
In the words of 1 John, God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. I want to close this morning by sharing an immense, palpable expression of God's love and care that came to me just yesterday. As I was at an introductory training for something called Stephen Ministry, some of you have heard about Stephen Ministry uh, and that we're beginning to explore the possibility of whether it might be something to which we're called here at Grace Covenant. But in a nutshell, Stephen Ministry equips and empowers lay caregivers to provide high-quality, confidential, Christ-centered care to people who are going through hard times, especially loss. And this introductory training that I was at the other day, uh, yesterday, was at a church in Northern Virginia. And toward the end of the training, as one of the final exercises, the instructor, who was a pastor, had everyone pair up with someone in the room that they didn't know. So pair up with a stranger. The pastor then told us to find a place to sit together. And once everyone was settled and seated down, he said, okay. Now, I'll give you each 30 seconds, pray out loud for your partner, and I'll tell you when to switch. Okay, go. As you can imagine, this was a bit awkward, particularly for the introverted among us. You could hear in the room the hesitant buzz as most folks, myself included, fumbled through a relatively nondescript general blanket prayer for 30 seconds for their partner. Then the pastor said, okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. Now I'll give you 45 seconds. Uh, each of you gets 45 seconds to share with your partner about the people who are most important and dear to you. Ready? Go. you could feel the room begin to warm up a little bit with that prompt as people started sharing about their loved ones. 45 seconds passed for each person, and the pastor said, okay, okay, stop. Now, I'll give you one minute, one minute each, to share two things that you're currently worried about and two things that bring you joy. Okay, go. Conversation at this point was flowing surprisingly easily, sincerely. Perfect strangers were forming bonds. They were smiling at one another. Some honestly were even beginning to tear up as the minute wore on. And presumably they were sharing a worry that was on their heart, or even a joy that was on their heart. But as the more minute wore on, you could see that everybody was intently listening to one another and supporting one another. And finally, the pastor said, okay, stop. Uh, now, I'll give you one last minute. Uh, you each get one last minute. 
Pray out loud for your partner. As you can imagine, in the span of three short minutes, these second prayers were radically different from the first ones. It was almost like a magic trick, uh, or more accurately, a revelation of the way in which we've actually been fashioned and created by God, whether we realize it or not, with the capacity to image divine attentive care to one another in even that short period of time. In even that short period of time, deep connection had already started to blossom and to bear fruit. As people named and brought before God for one another in meaningful detail, what was on each other's hearts and minds. The things that were weighing on them, that were weighing them down, and the things that were lifting them up. The people that they loved and cherished, the people that they recognized as finite expressions of God's infinite goodness in their lives. After three short minutes, people were able to pray in detail for one another on these fronts. Now, when we had started out, everybody, of course, had been very cautious and unsure of who this person was, who was their partner, uh, and what was about to be asked of them. Um, When we started out, everybody was sitting back, pretty stiff, upright. But again, within that short period of time, you could look around the room, and everybody was leaning in and sharing and connecting and listening and caring praying and supporting uh, for one another, being equipped with nothing more and nothing less than the healing touch of eyes and ears that God gave us to focus on simply being with another person. Now the pastor, after this exercise was concluded and everyone had gone back to their original seats, he said that his home congregation, uh, which practiced this type of ministry, had become known locally as, quote-unquote, hospital church because of the ministry of healing attention and care that they practiced, because of the ways that they served as the hands and feet, as the eyes and the ears of Christ, the great physician, who came to heal the sick, to call and save the sinners, to call and save the world. And it dawned on me a quote that I was familiar with really resonated with that moment, with that idea of being the hands and feet, the eyes and the ears of Christ to one another. And it came from French philosopher Simone Weil, who famously wrote in a collection of essays called Waiting for God, quote, the love of our neighbor in all of its fullness simply means being able to say to our neighbor, what are you going through? And perhaps, brothers and sisters, that sentiment is what Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner, a wounded and wounding creature of God, perhaps that's what he saw and what he felt from Jesus when he heard and leapt in far less than even three minutes at the invitation from Christ, follow me. Perhaps that's what brought Matthew to embark on a new life of evermore becoming a gift of the Lord to other people. To God be the glory forever and ever, brothers and sisters. 
Amen.